pleasure to be able to teach her, uh, be able to teach after uh, two really great men, uh, Jeff Doyle and Dr. Mark Lederbach. They both have had such a uh, played such a huge role in my life um, in helping me come to know Christ and uh, learning Him and following Him. Uh, they're corrective and encouraging and challenging. I'm just so thankful for them. And so it's such an honor to be able to do this work that I'm going to do this morning after them and to build on uh, all the things that they've done before. I do hope that do hope that I accomplish that and building on and not tearing down what has gone before. Um, so I'm thankful for that this morning. I uh, wanted to take a moment and pray uh, for us as we get started, but also to pray for all the folks who um, either aren't here because of traveling and summer and all that, and then... Um, and all the moms and dads who won't be able to come today because their kids are sick. Um, often that happens in a church like ours, lots of little ones. Um, and I'd like to pray for them. I'd like to pray that they be encouraged and challenged and um, met by the Spirit as they do what they do. So, Father, we do pray that. We pray that you would send your Spirit uh, in a special and kind and unique way to minister to them. Um, to moms who are taking care of sick little ones. Dad taking care of sick little ones so moms can come and worship, uh, vice versa. I pray you just encourage them, build them up, let them know that they're cared for, and the work that they do uh, is so valuable. God, I pray they'd worship in that work. Pray, God, that um, the folks who aren't here because of summer travels and uh, being out of school and, and all of that, Lord, that you'd be with them, you'd encourage them wherever they are this morning. God, that they would get time in your word uh, today, that they would not neglect that, and uh, they'd still away a couple of moments to sit and worship with you. Uh, we pray for our time this morning, God, that it would be honoring to you, and that you would make yourself known, you would uncover yourself and reveal yourself to us through your word, and God, that we would uh, learn obedience this morning, that you'd give us a rich desire to be like you uh, and to walk in that desire. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, knowing uh, this is the reason which you died, to make us like you. Amen. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Galatians 5, the, the last half of the chapter, probably one of the more quotable chapters of Scripture. If you grew up in church, you probably have memorized a song to help you uh, remember uh, the fruit of the Spirit and whatnot. Um, I was going to get you guys to do it, but that'd just be, that'd just be weird. Uh, though it's an oft-quoted, oft-taught, uh, oft-understood passage of Scripture, um, I think that Paul's point is a bit missed on us uh, every now and again. Often we miss the forest for the trees in this passage. And so what I want to do is to take a step back from the passage uh, to, to give us a big overview of it, how it works, how it functions. The, the point that Paul wanted to make to the, the hearers at Galatia is that he wanted to talk to them about how it is that one grows in holiness and godliness. And how is it that one goes well about struggling with sin, because we all struggle with sin. It's a matter of whether or not we do it well, right? So how do you struggle with sin well? Uh, those are the things that he wants to accomplish in this little section here. The reason that I say that his point is missed on us is because often we really, we, we think pretty well about what we would call justification, being the way that one is made right with God. But often we don't think that well about sanctification, the way that one uh, walks in holiness, the way that one lives out the Christian life uh, very much to the way that God lives himself. Uh, how do we be like Jesus day to day? Uh, 
really is the idea of sanctification. How do we become like God? Often we don't understand that element of this passage very well. And so it's my purpose this morning to highlight that, highlight that and to bring that about. So Paul sees being put right with God in right relationship and living rightly before God, practically, as inseparable. And he sees them rooted in one and the same thing. And that thing is faith. He sees that we're made right with God by faith and that we learn to walk rightly before God by faith. Look with me in Galatians 3, chapters 1, or uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, we're not going to have that uh, section of our text this morning up here. We will have the, the major portions of it, but I would like to get you to flip around a little bit with me. So if you have a Bible, uh, get it open if you like. And if, if somebody around you doesn't have a Bible, let them borrow yours. If you can share with somebody else, we're going uh, to share this morning. It's a good thing to do. So in Galatians 3, verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. So he's setting them up with this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? So Paul's point there is that, hey, you began well. You began by faith. You began by the Spirit. But now you've moved on to fleshly law-keeping to make yourselves holy. And he says that's just downright foolish. That's not how it is to be done. So this is a false way of going about and thinking about how one is made holy. Our passage this morning, um, as we pick up in verse 16, we're going to see this. He says, but I say, so this is Paul beginning his discussion about how it is that one goes about living a holy life. And so he picks up here and he says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. At the outset, it would be necessary to explain two terms to understand what's going on in our passage. First is to talk about who is the Spirit. The Spirit in this passage is none other than God himself, the third person of the Trinity. By the way, next week, uh, there'll be some great teaching on the Trinity happening in the first and second hours over in the Life Change Fellowship class. Uh, if you'd like to make your way over there and uh, get schooled by Anthony Bahala, he will... Uh, take you to task on uh, the Trinity. So uh, he's filling in for me over there, so I'm very thankful for that. Uh, so make sure you make your way over there uh, and get a little teaching there. Also next week, <clears throat> Greg Mathias is going to do a little bit of teaching on who the Spirit is from the pulpit. So you guys will get a double dose of that next week. So make sure you make yourself available for each of those if possible. So the Spirit is none other than God himself. The one who 
raises dead sinners to new life. The one who hovered over the water at creation. The one who causes us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. The spirit of the son, Jesus Christ. The one through whom we will reap eternal life. God himself, nothing less than God. God, a very God. So when we speak about the spirit in this passage, it is God. Now, in contrast to that, as we think about the flesh in this passage, if you're reading the New International Version, you'll see it says, rather than flesh, it says uh, sinful desires or, or sinful nature, actually. So basically, the NIV calls this sinful nature, and that's actually really helpful. So the flesh is all in man that's opposed to God. It's the sinful nature that's handed down from Adam to all of us. It's the thing that makes your cute little baby who you love and feed and protect and nourish look at you one day and say, no! I mean, why do they do that? It's flesh. Just one day something happens and they do it. It's the thing that makes a husband abandon his family. It's the thing that makes the nations rage against one another. It's the thing that makes you sleep in a half an hour later rather than getting up and meeting with your Savior. It's the thing that makes you hate your neighbors and your family and your coworkers. And it's this divisive or this uh, deceptive. It's the thing that makes people think that people are basically good and don't need a Savior. It's that deceptive. So we see in our passage that there's a conflict. We see there's two things warring against each other. There's a a struggle of the wills, a war of the wills, if you will. And I thought long and hard about this passage uh, and wanted to come up with a a helpful way of thinking about uh, how do we understand this. And And I hope the following allegory helps. There's a man named Christian. And Christian wakes up in a new city. He fell asleep in an older city that's very different than the one that he finds himself in. And that city that he finds himself in is filled with others named Christian. And at the center of that city is the creator, God himself. And creator's desire is that all of the people in that city would live for the joy of their creator and for that alone. That they would come near to him and know him and be his people. To ensure that, he sends his spirit to live within them. And the job of the spirit is to move Christian deeper and deeper and deeper into the city. And that as he moves into the city, he finds himself becoming more and more and more like creator. And Christian really likes the, the, the prospect of this. He, he really wants that. Uh, he desires that very deeply. But he finds a conflict within himself. He finds that sometimes he doesn't want to follow spirit into the city. And sometimes he wants to flee from creator. He doesn't want to be with creator at all sometimes. He finds a conflict in himself 
And he realizes that he smuggled something in from the old city. The thing that he smuggled in is called flesh. And flesh wants to drive him outside of the city away from God. He wants to push him to the limits of the city, out, further and further and further. And so sometimes flesh finds, or Christian finds himself following flesh to the limits of the city. And one day he goes further and further. And there he finds a fence called law. And that fence is old and rusted. And he sees that it wasn't set there for him. It was set there for a different people. But in that fence, he sees that creator loves his people. Creator doesn't want his people to leave the city. Creator wants the people to go back into the city and be with him. Creator set this fence in care and in protection. And as he touches the barbs on the fence, he remembers the slavery of the old city. As he stands there, he hears spirit calling, for freedom you have been set free. Flesh interjects. Creator doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you at all. And his ways are too hard. Surely if you've been a Christian for any time, you've had, uh, you've had an experience like this. You've struggled to desire God. You've struggled to want God. You've struggled to keep sin and flesh at bay. You've had victory and you've had failure. And often we find ourselves on the outskirts of the city. Paul makes it really clear you are not alone at all in this struggle. Often we find ourselves at the place that Christian finds himself and we think I'm all alone. I'm just out here by myself bumping around and we want desperately to be helped and that's what Paul wants to show you in this passage this morning. And he does this very clearly uh, in the first verse. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, this word is really important. It can be translated, walk in the Spirit. But the meaning of that verse is wildly different if translated, walk in the Spirit. I don't think that the context of this verse allows for that translation. And I think that other passages help us to see that that's not God's intention. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Verses 22 through 38, if you will, with me. I'll give you a second to turn there. That's Ezekiel 36, 22 to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26. 
This is God speaking. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall, you shall dwell in the land that I, give to you, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that are not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. It goes on to say in verse 35, talking about the surrounding nations, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So we see in this passage that God knows that we don't just need a, a nudge in the right direction. We need a complete and total overhaul of heart and of spirit. And not just that. God has a plan that involves restoring all things. That the place where people, where God's people find themselves will be like a Garden of Eden. And that people will look on that circumstance and praise God. Now we find ourselves in the beginning of that saga. We find ourselves where things are in the beginning of being put right. And so we see part of this promise being fulfilled in our own lives. That as believers, God has sent the Holy Spirit to live within us. And that point must be made very clearly. There is no struggle for the one who doesn't know Jesus because there is no spirit of God residing within him. There's only flesh. The flesh drives him around where it would have him go. There's no struggle. There's no spirit to guide and direct him towards God. Paul makes it really clear what it looks like for one to be completely and totally controlled by the flesh. He says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Sounds like a joiner family reunion. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> My parents were in the first service, so I didn't do it then. I warn you as I warned you before. <laughs> I warn you as I warned you. This is a warning. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying this is what it looks like for someone to be completely and totally controlled by the flesh. And the key to understanding this verse, getting this verse right, is to understand it backwards. So if you understand the second half, the first half will make sense. So when he says, 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should tip us off to what's happened earlier in the book. You remember the importance of who's your daddy in the book of Galatians. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. So in chapter 4, verse 6, it says, And because you are sons, that being sons of God, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So for the believer, if the question, who's your daddy, was asked, the answer would be God. So the question of, well, who's your mother, is also asked in verse 31. Verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Jeff did a great job of making much of that and helping us to see what that meant. But the point is this. If you're a child of God, then Sarah will be your mother, not Hagar, the slave woman. So, who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Is a, a big question in the book. So, whose you are determines your inheritance. I would much rather Bill Gates' inheritance than Wayne Joyner's inheritance. But he's not my daddy, so I'm not getting his inheritance. You would much rather the inheritance of God than no inheritance at all. So the question is this who's your daddy? Is God your daddy? And will you inherit the kingdom of God? You see, inheritance is not based on what you do. You can't do anything to get an inheritance in the classic sense. It's based on whose you are. So we've got to get that straight before we can talk about whether or not you're getting an inheritance. So how do you know? How does one go about knowing whose they are? Well, you ever heard the old saying, like father, like son? Who are you like? Whose does your life look like? If God is your father, does your life look like his? If your life is marked more by Pornography than purity, danger. If you worship at the altar of success and sports and leisure, warning. If you're known as angry and divisive and jealous, caution. If you're more controlled by what you drink than the spirit of the one who died to own you, stop. To be a child of God means to be like our Father.
So what does it look like to be a child of the Father? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. If one were to have no flesh, no sinful nature, what would he look like? He would look like this. He would look like Jesus. He would live a perfect life. If you saw Jesus face to face, this is what he would be like. This is how he would live. He would be kind. He would be patient. He would be loving. He would put others above himself. He would have no need for law. Because law was added because of transgression. So what is what are we to make of this idea? Against such things, there is no law. And the idea that uh, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. How do we make sense of that? Well, I think that as we, as we flee, as we flee from the flesh, as we flee sinfulness, as we follow the Spirit, the law becomes a source of wisdom for us that we can look at it and be directed by it. And God is uncovered in the law. He's revealed himself to us in the law. He's revealed his plan to us in the law. So he becomes clear to us in the law. But you remember back in verse, um, back in verse, I think it was chapter four, he says, uh, those who desire to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? So God's desire is that we would hear the law and listen to it and look at it and understand it, that we might understand God himself. Because what is God's desire? That we would be law keepers? Just simply law keepers? Just simply people who don't kill? No, it's his desire that we would be like him, much more and above and beyond. There's no law that governs God, but he lives out of who he is. He is loving, and he is kind, and he is patient. He is good. He is those things. And that's what we want to be, is we want to be like God. And that by the Spirit leading us, that that's, that's where we're going. If you look down in verse 24 with me, you're going to see something interesting. If you read verse 24 and it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
on face value, this, just, this says exactly the opposite of what I just told you. So if you're ever preaching and you get to a verse like this, it's really disheartening. It's like, man, you know, what do I do with this, right? Because it would seem to be saying that, well, everybody who belongs to Jesus has put the flesh to death. There is no flesh. It's dead with its passions and desires. So you should be free to just live like God, right? Because you only... You should only have the Spirit's influence in your life. There should be no struggle. I met a guy at Starbucks one time. This is what he believed. He believed that, that the Bible was teaching that when you became a believer, that you would not sin anymore, that you wouldn't struggle with sin, and that sin would be dealt with, done, over with. And I told him that I needed to speak with his wife about that. Because surely, and I told him that, because surely she would see his sin been said that marriage is like a full-length mirror for your soul. Um, it is. You know, anyone who can sit in this room and say, oh, I've dealt with, I've dealt with sin. I don't sin. Would be foolish and would be wrong. And so our Christian experience betrays this type of reading of this passage. So what can this passage mean? Uh, I want to give you three reasons why I don't think we should read this passage as uh, anyone who has become a Christian is perfect, okay, and doesn't sin anymore. That's that's I wanted to, to throw that out the window. And here's three reasons three reasons why. Just after this verse in verse 26, Paul is going to say, um, "Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another." So after he teaches on how you should follow the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and live a holy life, he then reminds you not to sin because you already forgot it. That's the influence of the flesh in your life. It's that pervasive. So that's my first reason. Second reason is in Colossians uh, 3, 1 through 10. If you'll turn there with me. Colossians 3, 1 through, 1 through 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you, too, once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul is saying... In verse 1, if you have then been raised with Christ, so the assumption is they've been raised with Christ, right? They're believers. So why then does he tell them, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And then gives a list really similar to the one we have in Galatians. Well, I think it's because he knows that there's a process happening. Uh, the, the word for put to death as the idea of make dead or slay utterly. 
So there's this notion of something that is still alive that must completely be put to death. So basically, flesh needs to be finished off. Thirdly, Paul uses the, the language of process in, uh, in our Galatians passage. He talks about walking in the Spirit, so it's a process you're going from one place to the other. And then he also talks about fruit. So fruit doesn't just magically appear. You put a seed in the ground, then the plant grows, then you have a bloom, you know, then you've got a little fruit, and then it grows into maturity and it's ripe, and then you eat it. So, I mean, that takes a while, right? It's a process. So I think within this passage we have plenty of keys uh, and, and clues that he's talking about something that's going to happen in a process. And I think the fourthly, the word crucifixion could also tip us off. So in verse 24, it seems that the flesh has been crucified, right? So if you belong to Christ, the flesh has been crucified, but not fully dead. So the flesh is crucified, but not fully dead. So the point of crucifixion was that it would take a long time. It was a mixture of execution and torture. Uh, if you'll remember in the New Testament, they're basically surprised that Jesus dies so fast. So uh, the whole point is that it would take a long time. And actually, uh, it probably is the case that they would give them water and wine and all these things to uh, make the victim, the, the one being crucified, live longer. So the longer they live, basically the more pain they endure and more torture. And, you know, the more everybody around sees, hey, you know, stealing is a bad idea. So the point is that it would take a long time. And I think that Paul is intentionally doing that in this verse. So crucifixion means certain death, but not immediately. Not an immediate death. So in the life of the Christian... Flesh has been crucified, but it's not dead yet. And it's our occupation to slay utterly the flesh, not to extend its life and power by offering it sustenance through gratification. Often, we cause the flesh to thrive by giving it the food that it wants through sin. If you feed and water the flesh through sin, it will live on. But if you starve and stone and beat it by following the Spirit, it will grow weak and it will die. But it's going to take, take some time. Your whole life. It's a process. The key here is those who belong to Christ. You'll see in the verse it says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. So it's key that you understand that the people that Paul is talking about are people who have abandoned themselves to Christ. If you're here today and you've not fully abandoned yourself to Christ, if you're flirting with Jesus but haven't given him ownership, laid your whole life down for him, then the flesh is still at work in you. It's still strong, and it's flourishing, and it's having its way with you. And when you get tired of being pushed around by sin and being a slave to sin and doing what it tells you to do, and when you get tired of the flesh driving you far from God, give your life to Jesus 
fully, finally, forever, till the day you die. And he will free you from sin. You will be a slave no more to sin, but you will be a slave to righteousness. You will be led by the Spirit deeper and deeper into God. In verse 25, Paul concludes what's been started back in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He's saying, having begun by the Spirit, now finish with the Spirit. Having begun with utter trust in God to keep his promises and to save you, now finish with utter trust in God to make you like him. With the Spirit in, the heart, in your heart and with the word in your hands, walk wisely, putting to death the flesh. With the Spirit in your heart, and the word in your hands, walk wisely, putting to death the flesh. That's the call. Christian, when you hear the voice of flesh calling you, saying, flee from God, you must remember, he's a crucified foe. He's weak, and he's broken, and he has no power over you. He only has a nagging presence. Christian, it's your job to starve and stone and beat him by following the Spirit. And as you follow the Spirit, you will go deeper and deeper and deeper into the city of God. And as you move further from the limits to the center of town, and as flesh his cold voice grows dim, you will find yourself more and more like your creator, more and more like God. As you worship the God of the Bible, you will become like him. Loving, joyful, peace-filled, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. If you know anything this morning, know this. God is with you in that struggle you find yourself in. In your very being. Not just near, but in. God is so concerned that you become something like him. That he nailed his son to a cross to guarantee that you get where you're going. And if that wasn't enough, he raised his son from the dead to show that he has power over sin and death. If you have given your life to Christ fully and finally, you will be like Jesus. So what are you to do? You're to walk. Walk by the Spirit with the word in your face, putting the flesh to death by following the Spirit. As the worship team comes, I want to challenge you with the words from verse 26. It's interesting that they're put here. 
on the hills of what we've just heard. It says, if we live, uh, no, excuse me, it says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why would Paul say this? And I think this is the case. That when we experience growth in our lives as believers, when we experience holiness in our lives, when God is making us new and we're growing and we're just in love with what God's doing, often, often we become conceited about that and we start to take credit for it. We start to say, look at me grow rather than look at God who's growing me. And often we can provoke others through our perceived holiness and discourage them rather than loving them and bringing them along, rather than coming alongside of them, encouraging them. We provoke them. God's saying, don't do that. If you're doing that, then the flesh has more control of you than you, than you realized. And finally, he says, don't envy one another. So as you see this body grow, spiritually, not just numerically, but as you see people grow, you see people being changed, don't be envious of them because you're not growing like they are. Rather, be thankful that God is growing them and ask that God would grow you in the same fashion. Encourage them. Point out the evidence of God's grace in their life and pray that God would do the same. Let us pray that God do, does that in this body. Father, we do pray, first of all, that you would make us like Jesus. Oh, that we would be something like him, like you, and that by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds and works of the flesh, through following you faithfully, with our face in your words, understanding who you are, desiring to live like you, Lord, lead us. And God, keep this body from self-righteousness, and self-holiness, that you may be honored among our neighbors and among the nations. Keep us from taking credit for any perceived holiness, actual holiness in our lives. God, put us directly in your will. Take us where we are going by your grace and give us the grace to walk along with you in that. We pray these things in your name and for your fame, Jesus. Amen.